Good morning, listeners. I have the deep, deep honor and privilege to be here with Martha S. Jones for what is going to be the final installment of Cambridge University Press's Black History Month podcast. And um, just as an editor, I've been blessed with the four books and authors that we've featured, and it's been really wonderful in talking to all of the authors about their books to draw connections, which is what we like to do as historians, and um, we should be doing it all the time, um, And but especially this month for Black History Month, um, it's just been striking to me, probably more striking to me than the authors, about um, how much these stories of people of color and similarly disenfranchised people um, in antebellum America have such relevance to today. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, the book is Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America. And our author is Martha S. Jones, who I hope everyone listening has been hearing Martha in all of the different venues, be it on the radio, on TV, in person, um, speaking about this since before the book published in July of 2018 and has read the book. If you haven't, after this, I expect you to run out and buy the book. I, I just want to say a, a word about Martha. She is currently the, a society, the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University University in Baltimore, where the book is set. But before Martha was an academic, Martha was a practicing lawyer here in New York City who was a public interest litigator and focusing on, I would say, people who are much like the people she focuses on in her book. Um, they were citizens of this country. Um, they had been born here, and they were, in one way or another, not granted the full rights of citizenship. In her case, she was working with homeless people, HIV-positive people, um, mentally ill people, um, who then, and Martha, you were practicing in the 90s, the 80s, or the 90s? 80s and the 90s, okay. yeah. So then, as now, um, you know, people deserving of all the rights of people who were much more fortunate but did not have those rights. And um, so let's go back to the 1830s, 40s, and 50s in Baltimore. And Martha is looking at former slaves, and I think in some cases some freed people, um, that were in largely Baltimore, who before the Civil War, colonization schemes, the law, and a whole host of other things um, basically threatened to deport them. And um, I hope everybody's alarm bells are going off because obviously this has been happening for quite some time um, in this country and it's not going away. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit into the podcast. But I, I want to focus on something that I've been talking with, with Richard Blackett and Jeffrey Kerr Ritchie and Carrie Lee Merritt about finding the finding folks that the law um, legally and extra legally were trying to keep down and trying to silence their voices and their activism and really their actions as citizens. Martha, how do you find these subjects and give them voice when the dominant social forces are trying to have them be anything but visible and active? 
So first of all, thanks very much, um, Debbie, for um, having me and for um, talking with me about birthright citizens. I would say that um, what was very important for me from the outset was to actually recognize that um, in the local courthouse, in a place like Baltimore City, in fact, once we actually look at the archives, um, we discover that um, African Americans, former slaves, and their descendants are everywhere. Um, that in fact, the legal culture in a city like Baltimore is one that for its own reasons, its own selfish reasons, um, reasons that have to do with controlling the labor of people, um, reasons that have to do with an overall sense about how to maintain social order, but that uh, a courthouse in a city like Baltimore is very interested in free people of color, is interested, in fact, in encouraging them to bring themselves and their disputes, their concerns and their claims into the courthouse rather than leaving them simply to resolution or the lack of resolution um, on the city streets. So I think in my case, we had been for a long time our uh, capacity to see this, particularly around the question of citizenship, our capacity to see this had been obscured because um, we had taken uh, too much to heart uh, the uh, infamous words of a U.S. Supreme Court Justice, Roger Tawney, who in 1857, in the case of Dred Scott versus Sanford, Tawney had said, um, black men have no uh, rights that whites are bound to respect. Um, well, that was Tawny's wish. That was Tawny's aspiration, but it wasn't exactly true. And so I open the archives and find the people I'm looking for everywhere. And that's a lesson in trying to think outside the box and um, trying to think beyond received wisdom. Right. What were some of your, or even just one, like your your big find or your surprise or, you know, someone or, or some site where you just, it was your aha moment and you said, you know, that this, these people and what they're doing, it's exceptional and I'm so lucky to be able to delve into these archives. Sure. Well, I mentioned um, Justice Tawney, and he's not unimportant in the story I tell because he himself is a Baltimorean. And I set this story in Baltimore in part because I want to know what the man who was the author of the Dred Scott opinion knew, not simply about jurisprudence. I wanted to know what he knew about the everyday lives of former slaves. So that's a, a question, how to answer it. Um, I'm not sure when I begin the project, but um, very early on, I am working through the everyday papers that um, come out of the Baltimore City Courthouse. I happen to be in a miscellaneous uh, file, which I love, miscellaneous files. You never know what you'll find. And I am looking at what are um, what I'll term travel permits. So uh, former slaves in a city like Baltimore, if they want to leave the state and later return, first have to come into the courthouse and uh, receive formal permission to do so. Um, so I'm looking through a bundle of um, travel permits from the 1840s, and I come upon one, um, a permit uh, taken out by a man named Cornelius Thompson. Thompson wants to travel um, in the summer to Virginia uh, to work in the spas there. 
at, which is very typical uh, for free African-Americans in Baltimore. They do seasonal work in mm-hmm. Virginia. And uh, when I examine the document, it doesn't take me but a second to recognize the chief justice's signature on this everyday fragment of paper from the local courthouse. And this is my aha moment, that there really is a connection between the agency, if you will, of former slaves in the local courthouse and the um, the complicated life of a Supreme Court justice, that Tawney not only stu- understood the uh, the legal history of something like citizenship and the puzzle of race and citizenship, he also understood what that puzzle meant in the lived experience of men like Cornelius Thompson in Baltimore. So that is my aha moment. And I'll just say um, it's really an aha moment because it's the first time that the state archivist of Maryland comes down from his office to stand at my table and say to me, I hear you found something. Now, I have found a lot of things, but this was the one um, that got his attention. But it helped me um, to appreciate that um, I had stumbled into something that I had to do more work to fully explain, but I had stumbled onto something um, that would resonate with even the state archivist. Um, And so I consider that like my aha moment um, early on in the project. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think this is why historians do it, right? I, I mean, it's a treasure hunt. And when you find something like that, there's there's nothing like it. But the book takes us um, well beyond the courthouse as well. Um, you know, I the courthouse scenes are vital to this book. Um, but what you also do, Martha, you are bringing us into churches, you're bringing us, you're showing the life of black sailors. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about that, how black people were exercising their rights as you know, le- legal actors, as citizens, in these other sites that you know were not in the courtroom or in, you know, what we think of when we think about law, but actually were legal sites. Thank you for that, because I think there's, sometimes there's a uh, misunderstanding about the kinds of materials I work with. I basically work in the courthouse materials with very slim, very uh, fragmentary records, um, mostly um, the notations of clerks and uh, very rote or ministerial kinds of documents. There is no testimony. There is no speechifying. So I have to go elsewhere. You're right to understand um, what the things that happen in the courthouse might mean to the people who are there. And for that, I'm reading, for example, um, African-American newspapers, Freedom's Journal, The Colored American, some of the very first um, African-American news weeklies um, in the early decades of the 19th century, um, some of which circulate in Baltimore, have agents in Baltimore. I'm able to read in a more full-throated way the ideas of black Baltimoreans there. I uh, read the records of um, what are often termed the colored conventions, and I'm deeply indebted to the colored conventions project at the University of Delaware um, for their recovery of so many of the public political gatherings that the people I write about are connected to. And there, once again, we find people teaching themselves law, 
debating questions related to the Constitution and telling us in a more full-throated way um, what their concerns are with respect to their standing before the law. Yes, I follow um, one gentleman, George Hackett, um, who um, after living um, through some challenges in Baltimore City, joins the Navy and gets a kind of legal education as the steward to the Commodore aboard the USS Constitution, where he observes legal culture, naval legal culture up close, um, observes a kind of inversion of um, what he knows in Baltimore, which is to say in the Navy, African-American men can testify against the interests of white men in ways they can't do in Baltimore. White men can be punished for infractions based on the testimony of African-Americans. They can even be flogged or whipped. So we see people who are um, from these various kinds of um, fora in their churches defending church property, um, resolving disputes over church governance. in all of these ways, people who have been largely excluded from formal training when it comes to law, right? These are not people who can go to law school yet. These are not people even who can even apprentice with local lawyers, which would have been another way for white men to uh, secure legal training. These are folks who are extracting from the institutions, from the experiences um, that they have in their hands, a kind of legal education that gives meaning to what they then are able to extract out of the local courthouse. Right. And I'm sure the um, the networks must help, right? I mean, you, you, you know, one of the many gifts of this book is just this very rich, textured look at Baltimore as a place. I mean, I I haven't been to Baltimore um, since before I started working on your book, and I think next time I go, it's going to feel very differently. You know, having getting to know Baltimore this way, because in places, all the places you talk about, you know, knowledge is circulating within the community. So I want to use that as a jumping-off point in a way to fast forward to today. and at this point, I'm really going to hand you the mic because you, you've been speaking and thinking about this so much. Um, the book, the message is timely. It would have been timely whenever it came out. But as we've discussed in a few other of these podcasts, this, this book, I think the birthright citizenship debate of the current administration, I think it hit the same week that the book left the warehouse in July. So Martha has really, I call you a, you know, a public intellectual on many things, but but you've really become, you know, I would say one of the key talking heads on what birthright citizenship means today. So, you know, today's struggle for birthright citizenship do those who are struggling, and there are many different kinds of people who are struggling, you know, do they have, would you say they have more of the resources, in some cases fewer resources? You know, I brought up community because when I sort of th- think about today and then think about Baltimore, you know, in antebellum Baltimore, I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes it feels like people have fewer resources and opportunities, and I find it worrisome. I guess the first thing to say is um, to people out there um, is 
a historian like me can never um, sort of game, you know, the politics of the day, you know, because you're <laughs> my course, editor. Yes. I started this book a very long time ago. And in a sense, um, tragically, right, it is um, it drops um, right at the moment that the administration is beginning to very publicly call into question the future of birthright citizenship. Um, but I think so I think there are a few takeaways um, because I'm a cautious historian in the sense that I don't think the past is a blueprint. I don't think it offers answers for our present moment. But I will say something about a couple of ways in which I think, I hope, the history has been useful. The first thing to say is that many Americans are, are just not aware that birthright citizenship is comes out of something more than kind of excess um, or wrongheaded thinking. Um, that birthright citizenship at its inception comes out of the struggles of former slaves and out of the immediate aftermath of the Civil War and emancipation. Um, and it is a radically democratizing gesture that makes four and a half million black Americans citizens in one grand and powerful gesture. Um, so this is not happenstance. This is not an afterthought. Right. And we're talking this about is, the 14th Amendment. 14th correct? Amendment right. in 1868. So this is um, this is sort of a core moment in the evolution of American democracy, um, not some sidebar is the first thing. Um, the second piece, well, I think it is that there is a um, unsettling analogy between the experience of former slaves and the experiences of undocumented immigrants in the United States to today. And I say that to say we have we erred in the early 19th century when as a country we um, refused to fumble and otherwise neglected to resolve the legal status of people who were building families and communities, institutions, um, who were engines of prosperity um, for the country writ large. Um, that was true for former slaves. And I would say it is arguably true today for unauthorized immigrants, people who across generations live under a kind of limbo that is a sort of terror, not really knowing where they stand before the Constitution, where they stand before the law. Um, I think our error in the 19th century should um, move us to right. um, and give us a, a, a kind of urgency about today. Um, that having been said, I think the democracy is something I've begun to think a lot about after um, writing this book. And here I borrow a page from um, political theorist Bonnie Honig, who says, you know, it is um, characteristic, it is ordinary in a democracy that there are always people who are outside looking to get in. Mm -hmm. um, this was true in the 19th century. It is true today in 2019. There is nothing aberrant. There is nothing undemocratic. There's nothing illegitimate. There's nothing un-American right. about people who are um, outside, if you will, um, making a claim on the nation and pushing us to think and to rethink our citizenship regime to accommodate them. That's what former slaves did. That is what I understand many unauthorized immigrants to be doing um, today. Um, so when we think about the relevance of birthright, it is um, 
something deep in our past and fundamental in our past. Um, it is a question that is not new in 2019. It is an old and um, perennial question, in fact, in the United States. And the final bit is that I still don't think history is enough. I think that if you are someone who at least wants to contemplate, if not make the case um, that birthright is a regime that we should continue to live by, way, by which um, going forward, you've got to make arguments about our own time. And here, um, birthright, certainly Congress constitutionalizes the aspirations of former slaves in the 14th Amendment to, in essence, put slavery um, behind us as a nation. Um, but it uses language that makes birthright pertinent um, for everyone after 1868, B1 descended from enslaved people or otherwise. And what that has done for us as a nation, I think, is give us one of the few nearly unassailable um, building blocks of democracy um, in our regime, which is to say birthright means that one is a citizen regardless of race or one's descendancy from a, an enslaved person. But it also means that citizenship is bestowed on birthright Americans regardless of religion, regardless of wealth or poverty, um, regardless of one's affiliation with an unpopular political party or position. Um, which, so in a country, um, most of our history is tainted with uh, the politics of racism, the politics of xenophobia. But in fact, birthright has insulated uh, an important um, and a major facet of our citizenship regime. You know, the children of Communist Party members during the Red Scares are citizens of the United right, States, right. the children of Muslim Americans and Muslim immigrants after 2001 are citizens of the United States unassailably. And this, for me, is the reason to defend birthright in the 21st century, um, that it has um, protected us, it has insulated us from some of our worst demons, um, our worst moments, our most despised um, citizens are still citizens right. of the United States. That is a wonderful thought to bring into the coming election year. You know, I mean, and thank you, Martha, for all of this, but especially that um, I, I, I think and I hope every candidate on both sides will use that as some kind of a bouncing off point and that that when people are saying, oh, should I vote? I, I mean, they they remember that. And so I, I want to leave on this note. And, and I, I want, I'm going, I'm going to, this is going to stay with me as my angst rises up and down <laughs> as we head toward November 2020. So thank you. And keep repeating that, please. Thanks so much for having sure. me, Debbie. I appreciate sure. it. Sure. Take care.